Thank you, Bert. Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24? Daniel 9, 24. And I think I'm all set here. Tonight we'll be uh, continuing our study of the day of the Lord, uh, that prophetic subject. And the, tonight we'll be looking at uh, Daniel 9, 27. We'll be in this verse quite a bit for the uh, next couple of weeks. And in the book of Daniel for probably another month and a half, too. Because uh, tonight we'll be looking at, uh, start to look at the 70 weeks, uh, the 70th week of Daniel. We've been looking at the 70 weeks prophecy from which we get the 70th week of Daniel. So tonight we start in on the, uh, the day of the Lord, as far as the eschatological day of the Lord, with the tribulation portion of the 70th week of Daniel. And, uh, and so we'll be talking, start really begin this study about what is going to transpire during the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, we've been talking about its outline and uh, into two, three and a half year periods, ending with the second advent of Christ, starting with the Antichrist treaty with the leadership of Israel. So tonight we'll be looking at Daniel 9.27 and looking at Antichrist treaty with the leadership of Israel, which marks the beginning of the 70th week. And in uh, what we'll be seeing in a preview of coming attractions, this will take us all the way through March, but we'll be looking at the Antichrist uh, suspending the treaty he makes with Israel, also his desecrating the temple. We'll be looking at uh, the character and actions of the, uh, the Antichrist during, and during the tribulation period, and that'll take us to Daniel 11, 36 through 39. And also uh, Daniel eleven forty to the end of that chapter, uh, talks about the movements of the Antichrist during the Armageddon campaign, which is the last three and a half years of the 70th week. And the very, you know, one of those classes will be in Revelation 13 and uh, talking about uh, what he'll be doing during that time. So you're going to get a lot of this, this part of the, the, uh, uh, the day of the Lord is going to be talking quite a bit about the Antichrist, of course, because he's a central figure. And uh, so uh, also, I think that we had a good prayer meeting. Thank you for those who attended tonight. And we're going to uh, get rocking and rolling here. So uh, let's uh, take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, determine if we're in fellowship with God. And uh, I look around, you all know what to do. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, let us pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for the grace, the faith, the salvation, your work on our behalf and eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, from regeneration to resurrection. We thank you, Father, for uh, this uh, church building to meet in, and we thank you more importantly for the people that you've raised up in this geographical location that are serious students of the word of God, that are truly disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ, and want to learn and put into practice your word and being uh, good uh, stewards with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that you've given them. We thank you, Father, for the leadership of our church, and we pray you give us us uh, in the leadership of the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this uh, congregation in a fashion that brings glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, and ministers to your people. I thank you for this study in the day of the Lord. I pray it would be a blessing to your people, and it would uh, motivate uh, all of us to uh, live, uh, experience our sanctification, to live holy lives, to live in a manner consistent 
with the fact that uh, the day of the Lord is imminent and is triggered by the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which brings about the manifestation of the Antichrist and that treaty with Israel, which we'll be noting this evening, as you've taught us in your word through the Spirit. I pray that you would help me tonight to bring forth your full counsel tonight with regards to this treaty that Antichrist will be making with the leadership of Israel that marks the beginning of the 70th week. Help me to do so with reverence, respect, and power, accuracy, clarity, and helping uh, so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. Help me to be sensitive to your spirit's guidance and direction. I pray he would use me mightily as his instrument, and I thank you for the great honor and privilege that you give me to teach your word to your people, and uh, I just thank you for the grace you've given to me. This is truly a non-meritorious blessing that you've given me to uh, come before your people that you purchased with the blood of your son. I also pray, Father, for your people in the audience. Help them learn, understand as well in the ministry of the Spirit. Help them to carefully consider what we're talking about here this evening. Help them to concentrate, and then for the purpose, of course, to make personal application, I also pray that not only all of us will be spoken to individually, but also all of us as a corporate unit. I also thank you, Father, ultimately, that you've given us insight into what's coming down the pike in the future, and how your plans for planet Earth, plans for the nation of Israel, plans for the church, and uh, that, that future kingdom that you're going to have on this earth for a thousand years that we're a part of, and on into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. So help us, Father, to continue to grow up, to become like your son, Jesus Christ, being, using these things, this, uh, this beautiful promises that you've given to us in your word about the future. Help us to use these as motivation to live the spiritual life. So we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You should be at Daniel chapter uh, 9, verse 24. We'll read uh, verses 24 through 27 in a moment. Again, our verse tonight is going to be on Daniel 9, 27. We'll be in this verse, uh, as I said before, we'll be in this verse at least for another couple of weeks, uh, two weeks after this. And then we're going to jump into Daniel 11, which is a fantastic chapter in the Word of God, especially uh, what we'll be looking at is verses 36 to 45 of that chapter. Uh, the first 35 verses of chapter 11 actually been fulfilled literally in history. And so thus far in our study of the day of the Lord, we had an introduction to this subject. Uh, we, we pointed out that the day of the Lord has many different uh, themes, uh, obviously one of, of judgment and God's wrath. But we also see, with regards to the day of the Lord, uh, that of restoration and actually the regeneration of the nation of Israel in the future. So it's not all in a negative uh, light that we look at the subject of the day of the Lord. We also study in the second hour the scope of the day of the Lord. We've seen a lot of uh, day of the Lord prophecies fulfilled in the past, and, uh, but we're studying the ones that are going to be yet future. And uh, so uh, we saw that those prophecies, day of the Lord prophecies that he spoke about, that are predicted, in the, uh, we see in the Word of God in the Old Testament, have uh, been fulfilled literally in history. So we expect that the prophecies related to the day of the Lord, the eschatological, the prophetic day of the Lord, as going to be literally fulfilled as well. And so then we noted, uh, started to note the 70 weeks prophecy because uh, immediately after the rapture of the church, we have the uh, tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, which begins with the Antichrist making that treaty with Israel. The, the rapture just simply triggers uh, the, uh, 
the Antichrist being able to manifest himself once the church is out of the way. And so uh, we noted, therefore, the 70 weeks prophecy from which we get this 70 week, 70th week of Daniel, and we noted the, th- the major inter- interpretations. And uh, we are uh, what we call uh, futuristic, or we call eschatological prophetic, and we believe that the, we're not like the preterists who believe that it's all been fulfilled and uh, it was completely fulfilled in the first century. And uh, that cannot be the case because Daniel 9.27, there's nothing that corresponds with it in history. Now, we also noted uh, the importance of the seven weeks prophecy. It gives us the prophetic outline uh, for uh, the future of the Bible. And we saw that Jesus Christ actually in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 is following right along with Daniel 9.27. And then we noted the sixfold purpose uh, for the 70 weeks prophecy. Uh, three, the first three of which are related to the bringing to an end the corporate sin of the nation of Israel, which will take place as the national regeneration of Israel, which is at the second advent when there's a national regeneration, repentance of the nation of Israel, the literal fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. And we saw this uh, in in Zechariah chapter 14. We see it, uh, and Paul talks about it in in Romans chapter 11. It's predicted in the Old Testament with the dry bones passage as well. So uh, we also have a lot of these, uh, these, some of the purposes for the 70 weeks is to bring in, usher in the millennial kingdom. So this book, is this passage, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, is presenting to us the prophetic uh, expectation of the nation of Israel. And this is what the disciples of Jesus were looking for. And we pointed out the 70 weeks prophecy, the first 69 of these weeks, which is equivalent to 483 prophetic years, uh, they were, uh, began with Artaxerxes' long Amenus decree in 444 BC that uh, we see in Nehemiah chapter 2. It, it, now the 69th week ended when Jesus Christ presented himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah, and he wept over the city, saying he knew, obviously, that they were going to reject him. The leadership of the Israel had already had a contract on him after the the raising of Lazarus from the dead, amazingly. And so they had it out for him. He knew he was, this was it. He was predicting to his disciples that he would be handed over to them and then crucified by the Romans, and then he would be raised from the dead on the third day. So we see that literally these 483 prophetic uh, uh, years, equivalent to 69 of these weeks, have been fulfilled in history. So we expect the 70th week to be literally fulfilled in history. But we saw that there's a break. We saw this, uh, you know, we saw this last week. There's a break between, there's a time gap between the end of the 69th week uh, and then the beginning of the 70th week. And that time gap is where the church age is. But we also see it, saw in Daniel 9.26, uh, Gabriel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told Daniel and all of us, that there be three events that will take place after the 69th week is, is completed. And one of those was the crucifixion of Christ. Second was the, Trump, the temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And that was fulfilled, all of those, literally in history, through the Romans. And the Romans destroyed the temple of Herod and the, the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Josephus, uh, the great historian, uh, who was a Jewish general, went over the Romans, and he was, uh, he was uh, one of those individuals that was, uh, documents it in great detail in his War of the Jews. And so uh, we see that uh, now, that Daniel 9.27, there's nothing that we've seen in history that uh, corresponds to what's being said in Daniel 9.27. So that's yet future. We also have help from the apostles, particularly Apostle Paul. Paul talks a lot about uh, in detail in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, about the day of the Lord. 
See, at that time, one of the problems that Paul was dealing with with the Thessalonians was that he, somebody had went into Thessalonica, into the Gentile Christian community, which of Thessalonica, and was saying that the day of the Lord had already begun. Now, he taught them about the day of the Lord, the things I'm teaching you. He taught them. And so uh, there, was, there was somebody saying that the day of the Lord had already begun, and then he had to go back and go over certain things in those verses to tell them, no, it can't begin and anti until Antichrist appears, and Antichrist can't uh, appear until the restrainer is taken out of the way. And the restrainer of Satan, evil, has to be the Holy Spirit, has to be God. And the Holy Spirit dwells each member of the body of Christ. So he, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually localized in the church at this time. So uh, we know that, obviously, they're everywhere present, but we also know that the Bible says they're localized in the church. So through the church, the individual members of the church, and the corporate witness of the church, the church is responsible for restraining evil in the world today. That's why Jesus said, with the salt of the earth. So this restraining ministry is ended with the rapture of the resurrection of the church. Now, of course, he's everywhere present, the Holy Spirit, so he will continue to give enlightenment, or, you know, to uh, help people understand the gospel when they're reading their Old Testament, New Testament, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, because after the church is gone, there'll be no believers for the first time in history. And so, therefore, the Holy Spirit, as they read the scriptures, the church will have left behind all kinds of stuff, obviously, and we'll see that they'll get saved, and you'll see uh, the 144,000 uh, uh, Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, and uh, we also see many Gentiles getting saved during the tribulation period. So we see that Daniel 9.27, we have uh, the treaty that's going to be made by Antichrist in the future that marks the beginning of the 70th week. So with that introduction out of the way, look at Daniel 9.24-27 on the board. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring, an end, bring in everlasting righteousness, the millennial reign, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Uh, the, the, the millennial temple that's talked about in great detail uh, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, those chapters. So 77s, okay, are decreed for your people. Your people is speaking to Daniel, they're Jews. He's talking about the Jews. The holy city is Jerusalem. To finish the transgression and to put to an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, has to do again with the corporate uh, sin of the nation of Israel. The majority of Jews have rejected Jesus as their savior. To bring an everlasting righteousness means the ushering in of the millennial reign, which will be characterized by righteousness, as we'll see when we study that in this subject. Also, the seal of vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place are also related to that dispensation. Then it says in verse 25, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree, and that's uh, there's four decrees of Persian rules that we could have used, but there's only one that fits the bill, and that's Artaxerxes Longamanus decree in 444 BC, because as we saw in Nehemiah 2, that dec uh, decree is found in that chapter, and it has to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The other decrees did not. So from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that marks the beginning of the 70, the 70 weeks prophecy until the anointed one, the ruler, that's, of course, Jesus, comes, there'll be a seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now, as we pointed out in, in the previous studies as well, when we're talking about uh, the, uh, the 70 weeks here, 
we see that he says seven sevens there. If you look at the passage again, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the anointed one, the presentation of the Messiah to the Jews as their Messiah, the ruler, that's Jesus, comes, there'll be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. So as you look at the chart on the board we've been using, seven weeks there is equivalent to 49 years. And that began with Artaxerxes' long Amanus decree in 440 BC. It ended this seven-week period, this 49 prophetic years, with the completion of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Remember when we studied Haggai on Sundays? 516 BC marked the end of that period. That also marked the beginning of the 62 weeks that follow it, that's equivalent to 43, 434 years. So it says there'll be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. So that's very important as well. So that, those two, uh, the, the seven weeks equivalent to 49 years, 62 weeks equivalent to 434 years are contiguous. There's no break between them. That whole period, that if you put them together, add them together, it's 69 weeks, 483 prophetic years, it was fulfilled to the day when Christ came into the temple in Jerusalem and, 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 and to present himself as the Jewish Messiah. After that, we have those three prophetic events in Daniel 9.26 now being mentioned that take place after the 70th week, 69th week and before the 70th week. It says in, uh, in verse 26, and says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off, the Messiah, Jesus, crucifixion, and will have nothing. He didn't start his kingdom then. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, who are those people? The Romans. So notice the ruler who is yet to come, that's described in verse 27, he's from the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So he's got to be a Roman, okay? So then it says, the end will come like a flood, war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Now, verse 27 says, and he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out. Now, my translation of that particular verse, verse 27, is as follows on the board. Then he, and as we'll see, that's, again, we talked about this before, it's the Antichrist. See, there's two princes here in the, in the, in the, in the, in the prophecy. The first one mentioned is the anointed one is the Messiah, Jesus. But when you get to the, the people of the ruler who is to come, uh, that destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple, that's the Antichrist. So he's the nearest antecedent, so he has to be the he here. So we'll talk about that again in the, in the lesson. And then he will establish a firm covenant with the, the leaders, which will be one unit of seven years. Okay, And so, however, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of this unit of seven years, while between the wings, which results in abominations, notice it's in the plural, he will cause desecration. That's why he's called the desecrator in this passage. Indeed, until the decreed complete destruction is poured out against the desecrator. So if you look at the chart on the board, we got a couple here with the 70th week. It's One's a part of the 70 weeks prophecy I got. So Antichrist makes this treaty. That starts the 70th week, takes place after the rapture. It ends with the second advent of Christ. And we also see it's broken out to two, three and a half year periods. Uh, that's according to the Jewish reckoning of time, a 360-day calendar. So it'd be 1,260 days or 42 months. It's mentioned in Daniel 7. 
It's, made, it's mentioned also in the book of Revelation as well, this period. And, of course, the book of Daniel. So the first three and a half years, uh, we have basically this peace and security. Uh, we see that it's basically a cold war. Uh, remember, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about this period that the inhabitants of the earth that are under the rulership of the Antichrist are going to be saying peace and safety and security. But little did they know that the Lord, the day of the Lord is about to begin crashing upon them with the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments and, and, the, and yeah, Satan thrown out of heaven by Michael and the elect angels, according to Revelation 12. So they have the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of, this, of Satan, who knows he doesn't have much time left, on the earth at that time. Okay, so Antichrist breaks the treaty, all right, three and a half years into this treaty. He desecrates it, and there's two abominations, as we pointed out. Now, my translation is literal, literal, and it's in plural. The NIV has it singular. I don't know why they did that, but uh, the, 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 we see most of them will have plural. So there's two abominations. Uh, one he's talking about, and we'll talk about these in, the, in this subject, of course. Antichrist sits down, and the rebuilt Jewish temple, 2 Thessalonians 2, and basically deify himself. We'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. And the other one is the false prophet creates an image that he, of the Antichrist that he makes come to life. Now that's mentioned in Revelation 13. The first beast in that passage is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. Now Jesus mentions that abomination with the image being set up in his Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. And he says then to the Jews living at that time in that passage, then you're to flee. And uh, pray that, you flee would not, that your, your flight would not be on the Sabbath because this tells us it's not written to the, the, the Christian, it's written to the Jews during the 70th week. So we see that then we have the Armageddon campaign and we'll be talking about the Armageddon campaign pretty extensively for the next couple of months. And so the Armageddon campaign, it's not, a, it's not like a pitched battle like Waterloo, it's a, like World War II, World War I. It stretches on for three and a half years and if Jesus doesn't come back at a second advent, there would be no human beings left alive. The human race would be exterminated, which is what actually the devil would like to have happen anyways. So then he, Christ can't come back and rule over, uh, have any subjects to rule over. So, and, the, and, 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 and basically not uh, uh, permit the prophecy to be fulfilled. So Daniel 9.27, people, presents to you and I, the reader, the next prophetic event that will take place after the three events recorded in Daniel 9.26, which will take place after the 69th week, or in other words, after the 483rd prophetic year. Now, in Daniel 9.26, as we just read, and we studied last week, Gabriel informed Daniel that the next, uh, the first event, which will take place after the 69th week, is the execution of the Messiah. And consequently, he'll possess nothing, meaning he will not have his kingdom yet at that time. And this was all fulfilled in history through the crucifixion of Jesus, as we saw. So he didn't establish the kingdom on earth at that time because he was rejected by the nation of Israel. Only a small remnant of Jews believed. Now, at the second advent, that flip-flops, okay? So the second event, as we pointed out last week, is that the people of the coming leader uh, of the future will destroy the city of Jerusalem as well as the temple by waging war. And this was all fulfilled in history when the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem and the Herodian temple in 70 AD. And that famous war between 66 and 70 AD. In fact, we alluded to this. Remember, when the first book I taught here, Jude, that book, like most of the people are starting to figure this out now with the help of a, a great scholar, Herbert Bateman IV, is that uh, the, the Jew, Jew is very concerned about this group of people who we know as the Jewish zealots. 
and they were hard to trot to fight the Romans because they misinterpreted the book of Daniel. You know, they, they understood in Jesus' day that the first beast, okay, in Daniel chapter 7, chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, vision, that for those four empires are in consecutive order are uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Alexander's Greece, and the Roman Empire. Now, they, they had that right, but the, what they had wrong is that the little horn on that fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to talk about tonight, and the ten horns which is the 10-nation European confederacy that he'll lead during the 70th week, uh, have to take place. And that doesn't take place until the future, after the rapture of the church. And the church was a mystery not known to Old Testament saints. So Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was trying to prevent the Jewish believers from being uh, 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 influenced by these Jewish zealots who were very patriotic and, yet, yet they were fighting, and using Scripture, but they misinterpreted Scripture. And so he was saying, don't have anything to do with these guys. So uh, these Jewish zealous won the day, and of course they led the nation into destruction. So we see that da then Gabriel tells Daniel, again, that there'll be war up to the 70th week. Now desolations have been decreed by God for Israel in its capital city, which has been fulfilled in history as well. Now here in Daniel 9.27, Gabriel says that the coming leader from the people who will destroy Jerusalem and the temple is going to establish a covenant, or we could say a treaty, with the leaders of the nation of Israel for one week, which is equivalent to seven years. Now, if you look at your, your Bibles, we have this uh, word in Daniel 9.27. It says he will confirm a covenant with the many. And the word there, see if I can get it up here in my, this, I have a, my article on, um, on the, uh, the book of Daniel, my, my, my uh, stuff I have written, it's on our website, and also um, my Antichrist thing up here, too, article I wrote on here. So I'm trying to load one of the things up. But the word for many there, until it, it's words rav in the Hebrew. And it actually, literally, it's, in the it's an adjective. It has an article before it. And it's talking about the great ones. The word literally, literally leads, uh, means the great ones. Or we could say the leaders. It talks about the military and political leadership of the nation of Israel at that particular time. So that's very important we understand that. So he's, when he says the many, he's not just talking about everybody in the nation. He's talking about the people who are the, the great uh, leaders of the time, at that time, which would be the military and political leadership of Israel. So the question would be, you'd have to ask yourself is, with knowing what we know today, why would Israel need to make this treaty? Why in the world would they need to make this treaty? Well, we know the United States at this time and from its infancy, uh, the, Brit the Brits and the Americans were pushing for this, uh, this particular uh, state for the Jews to restore them back to the land, which, by the way, has never ever happened in history. That a nation that was deported from its land, defeated on the battlefield, lost its central government and its geographical, geopolitical borders, and they were re removed from the land, scattered around the world for 2,000 years, and then they were brought back in the land to become a state again. And the Hebrew language, which was a dead language, okay, now, they're now it's spoken today in Israel. Nobody has ever seen anything like that happen in history. It's never happened. It's a miracle. That's why was it uh, queen, uh, one of the queens of England, Victoria? Why do you believe the Bible? The Jews. And that's one of the reasons I could say. Is I tell people, look at the Bible. How when you? I always talk about that. It's very fascinating. We talk to an unbeliever. Think about this. What nation do you know in history? Had and, and described to what I just said to you. That's fascinating. 
you have history to, to, as your support. That yes, the Jews are quite a people. Now the word for you know it says make a firm covenant. Um, you have here that they'll make a firm covenant, and uh, what does it say? You know, the Bible says he will confirm a covenant with the many. Now the word for confirm, and this is the reason why I went to my my article in Daniel. I didn't have it in my notes, but uh, the word there is gavar in the Hebrew, and it occurs only once in the Hifal stem. And the Hifal stem is a causative stem. I'll, I'll tell you what's, why that's significant in a second. But before that, if you look up here, I'll, I'll highlight it for you in my, my article. So it occurs only once in the Hifal stem, namely here in Daniel 9.27. Now the word actually, when it says confirm a covenant, it actually means to establish or a, a strong or firm relationship with a particular group of people. So here, again, it's referred to the prince who comes from the people who will destroy Jerusalem and the temple, establishing... A, or establishing a firm relationship, strong relationship with the nation of Israel during the 70th week. So the verb here, gavar, translated will confirm in your Bibles, it means that these two parties will enter into a strong relationship with each other, which is bound by a treaty. Now, again, back to my point. Why would Israel, knowing what we know about Israel and how Israel has uh, uh, been dependent upon the United States, really, when you think about it? I mean, yes, she's independent. But really, if she went away, she'd be in deep trouble, okay? Because then that would lead, the Russians would be, as you'll see in this study of the day of the Lord, the Russians are already, I wouldn't be surprised they got plans to do it, but they're going to attack Israel. It's in the Bible, Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to do that. It's going to be a blast. So many cool things in this. And so they're going to, they're going to with the coalitions of nations, are going to attack Israel, and God's going to destroy them. Israel won't even have to fire a shot. And so we see here that... So the United States, something has had to have happened to the United States, whether she's destroyed or whether she doesn't care about Israel anymore and she's pulled back her support because she can't, she can't do help her anymore, help Israel anymore. We don't know, okay? What we do know is that the United States is not found in the prophecy. We would expect her to be there considering that we really helped the nation of Israel and I think we've been blessed significantly in this country because... Uh, you know, of the prophets, you know, when God said to Abraham, he who blesses you will be blessed and he who persecutes you will, will, you know, will, be, will be dealt with. And that's been borne out in history. So we've been blessed significantly, I believe, many times because of our support of the Jews and actually helping them get a, a, a new, to restore it as, a, as a, a nation with political boundaries and a central government and borders, okay? So that, we're key to that. We'd expect her to be here, but she's not. So something has happened where Israel now feels a desperate need to hitch their horse to somebody that is comparable to the United States. And that would not, you could see actually it could happen, you could see it happening now. If the church was raptured, the military is significantly decimated because there's a tons of Christians in the military and whatnot. So they'd be in deep trouble. And then, you know, you have the United States of Europe already set up, and that's what Antichrist is going to rule over. A ten-nation European Confederacy, because the Roman Empire is in Europe, was in Europe, okay, and of course they we went all over the world, the Middle East and whatnot. So you could see them going to the United States of Europe, and this man, this charismatic individual, emerges, who's uh, from the pit of hell himself. Now, what's interesting too uh, here is the hifal stem of this verb. It's what we call a factative. Be patient with me; I just it won't be too much. But in the Hebrew grammar, it's a factative hifel. And that simply means that the subject of this verb causes its direct object. 
is key, causes the direct object to enter the state described by the verb in the cal. So the subject here is the coming leader, the Antichrist. And we see that, uh, that the leadership of Israel at that time is the direct object. So we would say with this Hifel stem of Gavar that it indicates that Antichrist as the subject is going to cause the leadership of Israel to enter into a firm or strong covenant with him for seven years. So the implication is, is he convinces them. He convinces the leadership of Israel, the military and political leadership at that time, it would be in their best interest to enter into a treaty with him. And, the, and so that's very, very important we see that. That uh, this is what's going on with the verb here in the passage. So while the rapture will precede the 70th week, it does not begin the 70th week. I repeat, the rapture will precede the 70th week, but it does not begin the 70th week. But rather the signing of this treaty between Antichrist, the head of the, the, the final stage of the Roman Empire, and the leadership of Israel, that will begin it. All the rapture does is trigger the manifestation of the Antichrist. So let's, uh, let's take a, a little jaunt, over, hold your place, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll be, talking, we'll be going back to this passage in the Day of the Lord's uh, series. Uh, and we'll probably spend a lot of time on it. In fact, I'm thinking seriously that the next book, books we're going to do after Habakkuk are going to be First and Second Thessalonians. I haven't determined yet. I got several ones I, I, I want to teach. I don't know which the best one to teach right now. We'll see. God will lead me. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really a reference to the rapture. And what he says for the rest of the chapter, or to verse 12, is related to the day of the Lord, the 70th week, and the second advent of Christ, right? So he's talking about the relationship between the rapture now and that, the day of the Lord, the eschatological day of the Lord, the tribulation period. So concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. See, at the rapture, we're gathered to him. The second advent, he comes back with us. See that? And that's, he's following John's Gospel 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus talks about the rapture for the first time. We'll be talking about all those passages when we go to the rapture and its relationship to the day of the Lord. So concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, a pseudonymous writing, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So notice Paul's upset that they're upset because somebody was saying that the tribulation period had come. Now you think of some of the quacks that have happened in the church who have been saying that the, day, the tribulation period is here. You know what Paul would say? He would tear his head off. That's what he would. So he says, now he's going to just remind them because he taught them all this stuff. He said, look what he says in verse 3. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion, apostasia, Occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and it will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Now, the rebellion, and there's three major interpretations, we'll go over this in detail when we get to it. 
Three major interpretations. I used to hold to the other two for a long time, been back and forth, but I got, when I did this passage, I said, what a knucklehead, it's right in front of us. One interpretation is that it's talking about the rapture of the church, the departure. The word doesn't really have that meaning at all, okay? Okay, it has nothing to do with that. So it doesn't talk about the rapture. You can just throw that out. The word doesn't mean that. And then also, the other one talks about apostasy. Can you hear the word apostasy? It's from the word, the word in the Greek text is apostasia. So apostasy in English is kind of a transliteration of this word. So like, that was the one I was thinking, oh, there's supposed to be this great apostasy at the end of the church age. And, uh, and, and actually, Paul talks about this in Second Th- Timothy. And uh, so I'm thinking, oh, that's got to be it. So I, I studied this passage and I'm going, you know, Paul explains himself. If he's, you know, if I've, doing, I've been studying Paul for 30, over, over 30 years in his writings. He always, you know, he always explains himself. So the rebellion is in the passage, in the context, is described. And if this isn't a rebellion of all rebellions, I don't know what is. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Now he's going to define the rebellion for us. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Doesn't that sound like a rebellion to you? Yes. It's the greatest rebellion of all time. It, it, this, uh, this beats the Tower of Babel. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the context is telling us that this word apostasy and translated rebellion correctly is speaking of the rebellion that Antichrist will lead to the human race against Jesus Christ. He's called Antichrist for a reason. Anti meaning against Jesus. Okay? Then he goes on to say in verse 6, and now what is holding him back, see he says what is holding him back? He says, now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed, who's that? The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, at the proper time. Now watch carefully. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but Satan's kingdom. But the one who, now it says, the one who holds him back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So if you notice, he's a, it's what is holding him back. But in verse 7, he's the one a personal pronoun. He's the one who holds him back. So which is it? Is he talking about out of both sides of his mouth? Is he contradicting himself? No. He's talking about and what is holding him back is the omnipotence of the one who holds him back. Who's the one? It's got to be the Holy Spirit. He's the one that working in the church that's conforming us into the image of Christ. He produces the fruit of the Spirit, right? So when he's removed at the rapture of the church, notice he is taken out of the way. He's localized in the church along with the other two members of the Trinity. So when he's removed, and that will happen at what? The rapture. Then watch what happens. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Can't be revealed until we're gone. Whom the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, the greatest of all lies, that Antichrist is the Messiah. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth and the truth is in Jesus and have delighted in wickedness. Okay, now go back now to Daniel 9.27, please. So when it says, he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven, uh, we see here, that 
while the rapture precedes the 70th week, it does not begin the 70th week, but rather the signing of the peace treaty between Antichrist and the leadership of Israel, both military and political, will actually begin it. And as I pointed out to you in previous classes in, in passing tonight, the, the third person masculine singular form of the verb gavar, translated he will confirm in your Bibles, has sparked controversy among interpreters of Daniel 9.27. Usually the people who are preterists who believe that Daniel 9.27 was fulfilled in the first century are the ones that give me problems and, and people like me. The nearest antecedent is the prince who will come from the people who will destroy Jerusalem and the temple by waging war, and it doesn't refer to Jesus Christ. What do I mean by this nearest antecedent? Okay, He says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Who's the he? Who's the referent for him? Who's he, who's he referring to? Is it the people of the ruler who will come, destroy the, the people of the ruler who will come, will destroy the city in Jerusalem, the sanctuary, the temple? Is it that ruler? Or is it the anointed one who's cut off at the beginning of the, verse 26? Or is it the, the anointed one, the ruler, in verse 25? The anointed one, the ruler in verse 25, and the anointed one in verse 26 who's cut off is obviously Jesus. Is he the nearest antecedent to this word he? No, it's this ruler here. You can see that in the, with the proximity of the text, okay, in your own eyes. So they're wrong. They, 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 again, this is a perfect example of people like that who refuse to believe that this, is the, uh, this Antichrist is because they have a theological construct, a paradigm, that not, they're not willing to let exegesis of the text change their view. So they're tied to their, which is academically dishonest, by the way. But I understand it, and uh, you know, so it's hard to change, right? But if it's the truth, why not go roll with it and go where the evidence leads you? So the rules of grammar would support the view that the nearest antecedent for the he, at the beginning of verse 27, is the prince who is to come in Daniel 9.26. Now the rules of grammar, if, actually we can go back again, if one interprets the he in Daniel 9.27, as the Messiah, then one cannot reconcile the fact that the temple sacrifices continued at this, until 70 AD, over 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And the text says he's going to end the sacrifices there. But the sacrifices continued well after Jesus. How could he be the, how could he be the one who makes the covenant here? Because he, it says, the text says, this he desecrates the temple. He ends it, it stops the sacrifice. So furthermore, that he in Daniel 9.27 breaks the covenant. At what point did Jesus, if, he's, if Jesus Christ is the one in view here, where did he make a covenant with the Jews and then break it? I don't see anywhere. There's nothing in the New Testament that would even suggest this. Would Christ break a covenant to start with? He made? No. Thus the individual establishing the covenant with Israel is not a reference to Jesus Christ, but a prince who we don't know the identity of yet. But we do know the nation he will come from, Rome. He will be a Roman. He's the head of the final stage of the Roman Empire. He's the little horn on the fourth beast in Daniel. And the fourth beast, everybody knows, is the Roman Empire. And the little horn has got to be this ruler, the beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist, the desecrator of Daniel 9.27. So, the coming leader, mentioned in Daniel 9.26, and here in Daniel 9.27, with this verb, gavar, he will confirm, is a reference to the Antichrist. It's not a reference to Jesus Christ, since Jesus Christ was not a Roman, and furthermore, the Messiah is said to be executed. And the first statement in verse 26. So this coming leader is coming after the execution of the Messiah. 
Now, the coming leader is also not a reference to the Roman general Titus. I'm bringing up people of the past who, who argue against the Antichrist being the referent here in Daniel 9.27. So the coming leader is also not a reference to the Roman general Titus who led a siege against Jerusalem in 70 AD because the emphasis on Daniel 9.26 is upon the people. It's the people who did that, not this coming ruler. It is also stated in the text. This, it's stated this way because this prophecy would link the Roman destruction with the event which took place in 70 AD while simultaneously setting up Antichrist to be linked to the first he and Daniel 9.27 and the 70th week. So the coming leader also cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes IV, although Antiochus Epiphany IV and his, what he did in the second century BC and persecuting the Jews. And, you know, we have, um, uh, the, we have uh, the Jews at that time were persecuted greatly by this guy. And he's actually predicted in Daniel 9.8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, he's predicted in that passage to appear in the pages of history. He was predicted, Daniel predicted about him in, in the seventh, uh, 6th century BC. Okay? So it's not him, though. Antiochus Epiphanes is not the person here because he did not destroy the temple of Jerusalem. Okay? The Romans did. Okay? So, therefore, Daniel 9.26 makes clear that the people and the coming leader will not appear on the pages of history at the same time. Daniel 9.27, people, also makes crystal clear that the coming leader is the future persecutor of the nation of Israel during the 70th week or the 70th unit of, this, of seven years. So the phrase, people, the people of the coming leader in Daniel 9.26 simply means that this coming leader, who we don't know the identity yet, will originate from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the Herodian temple. So very important. So the coming leader, the, le- the coming leader is the nearest antecedent to this verb gavar. He will make, he will confirm in Daniel 9.27. So thus the latter is speaking of this coming leader who will come from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and history tells us that that was the Romans. And thus the Antichrist will be a Roman dictator. He's not Obama, he's not Trump, and he ain't Biden. Okay? None of those guys can fit the bill of the description of the guy in Daniel chapter 7 or Revelation 13. They're not even close to him. Okay? And they're not Romans. Now, some people say, well, us in America, we're descendants of the Roman Empire. I don't think President Obama came from a, a, a race of people that came from uh, the Romans. What do you think? So it's ridiculous. So he's a Roman. And see, you might say to yourself, Bill, the Romans are nothing. How could they be? And I say this a million times. What do you think Babylon was at one time? couple of ragtag tribes. What do you think Medo-Persia was? Same deal. All became world powers. What do you think Alexander the Great's empire? Do you know Alex, the Greeks could never get together in anything? They could never get together and, uh, you know, big Sparta, you know what I'm saying? And then Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, he was actually got those guys together and Alexander the Great really put it through and so they were able to become a world empire. And then Rome was a bunch of there was tribes out of that little boot that we call Italy today. Sicily, right? What happened to them? Became a major superpower. Those little, those little hawk-nosed, short little Roman guys beat the living daylights out of the Roman, of the, Jew, of the, of the Germans who were about a lot bigger than them. 
You know, the Germans would be big Ronthia swords, you know. We'd cut on one side, but the Romans, they had these little dagger, the Mahira. And they had little short dagger swords. Boom, 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 boom. They had the technology was much better. They were better trained. They had the lock and shields and everything. And they were tremendous fighters. And they beat the living daylights out of the Germans. And the Galatians and all those people. They ruled the world. Okay? And so they had smart, they're smart with their technology. And they make really good pizza and chuck and parmesan. So... Oh, I'm just making sure you're awake out there. So Daniel 9.27 is, says that the Antichrist will pretend to be Israel's benefactor and make a treaty with her, but will turn against her in the midway point of Daniel's 70th week and will persecute Israel and occupy Jerusalem for three and a half years. So he will make a seven-year treaty with the leaders of Israel, military and political leadership. In fact, he will... As we saw with the Hifal stem of the verb Gavav there, he will confirm. It actually means that he will persuade them to make this treaty and to tell them it's in their best interests. So he will persuade them to make this treaty with him and this will begin the final seven prophetic years called the 70th week. And during the middle of this 70th week, after three and a half years, he will break the treaty and stop the sacrifices in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declare himself God. Nothing in history corresponds to the events described of the, during the 70th week in Daniel 9.27. And the second advent has yet to take place. Now, let's go spend the rest of the evening that we have left, which we don't have too much left, but let's go to Daniel chapter 7, which is a really cool passage, and maybe Daniel 11 if I have the time. But, but we'll be in Daniel quite a bit next couple, month or so. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 1. Now, one of the things that you need to know about Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 2, they correspond to each other, okay? Daniel chapter 2 and 7 both talk about the times of the Gentiles, which began in those three of Nebuchadnezzar's invasions, uh, 605, 597, 586 B.C. We've been talking about that a lot in our Old Testament studies. That begins the times of the Gentiles. Jesus talks about the times of the Gentiles, Gentiles in his, uh, up in his, uh, his teaching near the end of his ministry, okay, before his crucifixion. So the times of the Gentiles, where Gentile superpowers, uh, the superpowers, that will be, stands in contrast to what's going to be in the millennial reign, the age of Israel, where Israel is the superpower and the only one with her Messiah, the king, the Jewish Messiah, on the throne as king of the earth, okay? So Daniel chapter 2 talks about four great world empires and another one that's attached to the fourth one, okay? The final stage of the Roman Empire under Antichrist. The one in chapter 2 talks about the times of the Gentiles. That chapter talks about the times of the Gentiles that we're presently in. Uh, it talks about these world empires, these superpowers, Gentile superpowers, from man's viewpoint. You get to chapter 7, they're talking about these superpowers from the perspective of God, where God looks at the nations, including our own, as beasts, okay? I remember there's a great scene in that movie uh, where it was, uh, he did JFK, was it, uh, what was the guy? And he did a movie on Nixon. And this is based on a, this was actually, people who saw this, Nixon was at the, went to the Lincoln uh, Monument, you know, thing, and he went there, and all these protesters of the Vietnam War were there, okay? And 
He goes, he has Nixon, and he reports that he, this didn't take place. And the kids, were, he went to the kids, he was talking to them. And, and so he's, you know, he's trying to get, end the Vietnam War and everything. And, you know, of course, it, it takes a lot longer than he wanted to, right? So the kid, one of the kids goes up, you can't stop this either. This is a big beast, right? And he, wait, and he nodded and said yes. So the nation, Gentile superpowers, from God's perspective, are beasts. And this is what chapter 7 is about, the times of the Gentiles. So it says in Daniel 7, 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds churning up the great sea. And great sea is, is basically speaking of the nations, the Gentile nations. We see this kind of uh, metaphorical use of the great sea in Revelation 13 as well. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea, and they're going to be nations, okay? The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of man was given to it. So that, as we know, and all the old commentators, everybody even up to the present time, from maybe liberal commentators who are not, um, doctor, uh, not orthodox in their theology, they don't believe in the supernatural, they all, everybody knows this is Babylon. Okay? And there was, a, uh, there was before me a second beast, which looked like, and by the way, that first beast corresponds to the head of gold and the, ver and the vision, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, really of himself in Daniel chapter 2. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. And it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I don't have the time to get into what all that means. But it was told, get up and eat your full of flesh. So that is Medo-Persia. That beat, defeated Babylon, absorbed their empire into itself, and they, they reigned for about over 200 years. Babylon was only around for 66 years. So then we have another beast, in verse 6, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird, and this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. This is Alexander's empire. And by the way, the, the beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. The four beasts are actually the four of Alexander's generals that took over for the empire after he died of alcoholism. And notice it's like a leopard. So this empire was like, had the speed of a leopard. That's why God describes Alexander's Greece with the figure of a leopard, okay? So we know this is a good description of Alexander's Greeks because nobody's ever seen an empire conquer nations like Alexander's empire. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. And we know this is Rome, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. And it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I've read a lot on the Roman Empire. I read the Gibbon and I uh, talked, I read him, uh, Michael Grant, and all these people from history and different, uh, uh, and Herodotus and uh, the Tacitus of the Roman Empire and, uh, and Josephus. The Romans, this is a tremendous description of the Roman Empire. It's right and spot on. They crushed everybody, they were absolutely overwhelming. Okay? And this was different from all the former beasts, but in that it had ten horns. The ten horns is what the Jewish zealots in the first century of Jesus' day didn't consider as being another 
a, 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 a final stage of the Roman Empire, they didn't take that into account, and that's why they thought the Rome of their day was when the Messiah was going to come back. No, he'd come back during the days of the Ten Horns. So while I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one. There's a picture, one of the first descriptions of the Antichrist, actually it's the first description of him in the Bible, I think chronologically. A little one came up from among them, the ten horns, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And so uh, it says, as I looked, thrones were set up in place. In the ancient days, now we get a, a little interlude here. So ancient days took his seat, that's a picture of the father, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like white as like wool, and his throne was like flaming. Uh, was flaming with fire. Speaking of judgment, so apocalyptic language here. And its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Now that's uh, uh, the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who came up to the Ancient of Days, as verse 13 and 14, as we'll say. Verse 11 says, Then I continued to watch before, because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking, the Antichrist. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its bodies destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. This is a picture of Jesus. He used this title, as I said before, of himself throughout the Gospels more than any other description of himself. And the Jews knew what he was talking about. He's the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. This son of man who goes up to the Ancient of Days, the father, gets the kingdom. And they all knew, the scribes and the Pharisees knew this. And so he says, In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, the father, and was led into his presence. That's the the session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Sit here while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay? He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay? Jesus' kingdom. Now we go back to what's going to go on with the, uh, the ten horns and the little horn. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there, an elect angel, and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts of four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I noticed they're premillennial. God's premillennial. <laughs> then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, meaning the Messiah has to come to bring in the kingdom. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast. That's the Roman Empire, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns, which is speaking of the final stage of the Roman Empire. And the five, ten horns on this fourth beast's head. And about the horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So arrogance and pride 
where this, is, this, this guy was characterized by, the Antichrist. This is how he'll be characterized. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. And this is true during the tribulation period. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom, starting the millennial reign. He gave me this explanation. He says the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. We know from history it's Rome. That will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth. Trampling it, trampling it down and crushing it. No greater description of the Roman Empire has ever been made. Ten horns are ten kings who come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High, this little horn, the Antichrist, oppress his saints, and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and a half time. You know what that is? Three and a half years. Time, times, so notice it's plural, one plus two is three and a half time. There it is, three and a half years. It's the last three and a half years of the 70th week. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints and the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. And this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This poor man was given a panoramic view of history, the future of history, of history and the future. I mean, this guy must have been, oh, he was wiped out from what he was given. And one of the great men of history, the Bible, and one of the great saints. He's one of those guys I want to meet after the Lord, and of course. So we see here that Daniel 7.26 refers to the Supreme Court of Heaven passing down the decision to remove the little horn's power, the Antichrist power, which will take place at the second advent of Christ, which terminates the 70th week of Daniel. So the Antichrist will start off as an insignificant world ruler among ten other rulers of kingdoms, but will defeat three of these ten kingdoms and emerge as a world ruler. The eyes of the little horn speak of the faculty of careful observation, implying that the Antichrist will be extremely intelligent. He'll be unbelievable intelligence. Okay? The boastful speaking indicates that the Antichrist will be a great speaker, charismatic speaker, Along the lines, I'm not saying you know, Hitler was a charismatic speaker. You watch, there's a reason why people went crazy for him and still do today, okay? You know, he, was, he was from the pit of hell. He was a, a tremendous charismatic uh, speaker. So was Reagan. Kennedy was incredible. And, like Martin Luther King was a great speaker. There have been a lot of great speakers. Ch Churchill. But this guy is going to trump them all. And nobody's ever going to see anything like this and ever again. So, this is, so the boastful speaking indicates that the Antichrist will be a great speaker who in the judgment of God is arrogant in his words. So as we close with these two last slides, the Antichrist, the Antichrist will seek to prevent our Lord's rule on the earth and our rule on the earth because we're the bride of Christ, right? He'll seek to prevent our Lord's rule on the earth by attempting to destroy God's covenant people Israel. But his reign will be short, only three and a half years, and it will be terminated with the second advent of our Lord, who at that time will establish his millennial reign on the earth in fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. 
And finally, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7 concerning the little horn and the prophecy in Daniel 9.27 will take place in the future because no Roman ruler has attained world rulership over a one-world government. No such Roman ruler has subdued three of ten kings who were ruling at once. And no such ruler has persecuted Israel for three and a half years. And no such ruler has been destroyed by the return of Jesus Christ. So, we see that we're just getting heated up here with this, uh, this, the, uh, this subject of the eschatological day of the Lord, the tribulation period, and Antichrist. And next week, we're going to stay in Daniel 9.27 and note the Antichrist suspending the treaty and, and you know, desecrating the temple, which marks the final three and a half, beginning of the final three and a half years, and the Armageddon campaign starts at that, at that point. So this is going to be uh, a lot of uh, fireworks that we're going to run into. So what I want you to know, though, and I want to reiterate as well, when we study prophecy, okay, God, first of all, wants us to know this. We're his bride. Here the Lord has revealed this. We have the Spirit, and God wants us. In fact, we have revelation, and God and, and, and revelation brings it all together. Revelation is like the train station. All the trains come in. And so here we have God wants us to know what's coming down the pike. He wants to know the son wants his bride to know what's coming. He's just like any great marriage where there's communication. Uh, and this is going on. God, through his spirit, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they're try communicating with us in Scripture. They, they want us to know these things. What we need to do is our behavior, what we've been told to do, and obeying the commands of, to love one another as God has loved, Christ has loved us. And to all that involves and praying for each other and encouraging each other as the day goes near and being good stewards with the time, talent, and treasure that God has given to us, growing to spiritual maturity, you know, using our gift, be, being, uh, making our priorities, God's will first and foremost in our life, living, be, you know, at, at home, you know, raising our kids according to the, the way the word of God says, being uh, husbands, loving your wives like Christ loved the church, wives, obeying your husbands in all things as unto the Lord, and all of us in the body of Christ doing everything as unto the Lord and living our lives in light of the imminency of the rapture or our death, whichever could come first, and living our lives accordingly in a godly fashion, confessing our sins when we sin. Don't wait till next week. Confess your sin. Stay in fellowship with God. Have respect for him. And then do it as word says. And the first step is what you're doing, learning God's word. You have sanctified time alone with God and you should have sanctified time with the body of Christ. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves as the habit of some. Hebrews chapter 10. So we need to do that. Corporate worship, our individual worship with God. Prayer, corporate prayer, individual prayer in our life. This is all our responsibilities as we wait for this time to come. But we know it's coming. And we can also use this, not only to motivate us and to encourage each other in the body of Christ to go forward in God's plan, despite trials and tribulations, but also use this as a tool to evangelize. Because every single person on the face of the earth who is not a Christian wants to know the future. And that's why they go into tarot cards. And that's why they go into horoscopes. And they're, they're in Nostradamus and all kinds of crazy things to try to know, the, trying to contact the dead. People do that all the time, whether you believe it or not. And they're doing, they want to know what's coming down in the future. God has told his church, the bride, through the spirit, what's coming. So we can talk to them and say, this is what's going to happen to this earth. And this is what's to come. The worst period of history is about to come. And God wants, you to, wants to deliver you from that. 
He wants you to have a relationship and a fellowship with him. He doesn't want you to go through this time. This time. So th this is a lot of things that we can get from this, and I'm going to continue to re reiterate all these things when we talk about these things, because I don't want us to be where, like some ministries where we get a big head and we get, or we get oh, look at all the stuff. We, you know, we know the future. We know prophecy really well. And, like, and you get people, you know, it's very tendency if you're doctrinal people that you know, you're, you're making it to get arrogant. We don't want to be that way. We want to be like not know-it-alls. We want to be somebody, we show how our humility when we take the word of God and put it into practice and don't look down at other people who are not taking in this teaching the way they should. We should be praying for them. The humble thing would be to pray that they hear this. And I truly believe that Huntsville is, I, I can't explain why, okay? I can tell you right now, we're in a place and God's doing something here. I've seen around my periphery, I've run into people, I'm telling you right now, something's going on. I don't know what's going on with this election. I'm not making any predictions about it, but I don't think, it, I don't know what's going to happen. But I tell you something, something's going on in the country. And I think everybody in this country knows it. I mean, with the financial decisions, a situation in our country, I, mean, I was talking to my brother Chris, I mean, the whole thing could collapse. I mean, we could never, I mean, really, we don't really know. They don't know. I don't care what the experts say. But one day, if something catastrophic could happen in this country, I don't know what it's going to be, and we need to be ready because I'm telling you right now, people are going to want answers, and they're finally in this country because uh, we're so prosperous and we got everything. We got our flat screen TV and we got our indoor plumbing and we got hot water and jacuzzis and we got this, that, and the other thing. We got so many things. I mean, we got microwave ovens, central air. You know, we take all these things for granted, these luxuries. They're luxuries. You know, we got these cars. We got heated seats. I got a heated seat in my car. It's like, I mean, this is talk about. That's talk about spoiled, right? Okay, we got all these things, but imagine if this all came crashing down. And we're all out at Kirk's farm and, and uh, Bert's farm, you know, living off the land. And uh, I hope we have an uh, open invitation when this all goes down. But if it ever happened, I'm not, it may not. But we got to be ready, okay? Because when everybody's like going, freaking out, I can't tell you how many times I remember, I remember 911, the day it happened. And I remember, you know, I had just got to Iowa and then we had some prayer meetings. We, was, I think we had a prayer meeting every week. And, uh, but I remember, all of a sudden, I come in, and I mean, I've been, you know, I was studying all day, and I would go back and I would go on the phone, but pretty much I was working the whole day, and I, I was following on TV, I had a little bit, I'd work in the room and say, okay, what's going on, blah, 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 and then I come back, and then I finally, I get to the church, and you know, for the prayer meeting, and it's like, holy mackerel, the place is packed. And I'm saying, oh, I know why. Everybody's scared out of their minds. They don't know what the heck's going on, you know? I remember when the Persian Gulf, first one, first Persian Gulf War took place. I, my people in my work, I was at uh, Penguin Computers, that uh, computer dealership I worked for, and they all come up to me. And they had a pretty big audience. Was this the? Is this going to be the Armageddon? Is this the end of the world here? It was like because they were talking about Israel. You know, if Israel retaliated against uh, Iraq, they were afraid it was going to all blow up. And it, I so I said no. I said, you've heard me say this before. When I'm gone, yeah. Then you can hang on your hats because it's all hell's going to break loose, literally. And I said, why that? And then I got my open, open door. Here it is. So you just, and I got my bosses to come to hear Bob teach. I, I got it, he actually came. So you don't know. And, I, and again, we pray that God would help, you know, we, positive volition and people see. You're never going to have positive volition unless people see their need. 
I mean, you can start with the church first, because a lot of Christians don't see their need for the Word of God in gathering together, you know? So we see that, that first of all, we need to pray for the members of the body of Christ in our periphery, whether in our geographical location or whatever out here, that they would see their need for the Word of God and also the unbeliever. Unfortunately, most of us are hard-headed, and it took me uh, tough love for me to wake up and see my need for the Word of God and God in my life, of course. So... Hang on to your hat. So let's, uh, let's just take as much we learn from this study to, and put it in a, uh, make an application and, uh, in our own lives and in the life of this church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study word. We pray this lesson be a blessing to you people and bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, and help us to, uh, to apply what we've been taught here today, uh, not to become arrogant and boastful or think we're better and smarter than others or more doctrinal than others. We, we, Father, we humbly receive this word and we know that you want us to be motivated to grow up spiritually, but also to show, uh, to be ready to proclaim the gospel to those people when they see their need. And, uh, and so we just pray that we'll be ready as a church. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And I'll sing you a song. You can bop out of here if you need to. <laughs> I have no idea if you can see that. <laughs> Maybe you do.